Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. Well, hi everyone. Thanks for braving. Hi Dave. Thanks for braving the, um, you know, fairly challenging conditions to come. I really appreciate it. I mean, it would have been okay if it was just me and Oren and Linda, but it is nice that there are a few more people. Um, because, um, one, it makes me feel better, but two, I, I really believe that um, the insights that I'm going to share today will be uh, hopefully at least thought-provoking, but I hope quite heart-enlarging as well. And um, I think this is the first service that we are looking as a community at Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. We've done it in house church last week. Um, but this is the first time in, in this service. And I am deliberately not referring to it as the parable of the prodigal son because, um, one, not every version of the Bible refers to it that way. Some call it the parable of two sons. Some call it the parable of the loving father, which is by far my preferred. Um, but actually, I don't know about you, but when you read that subheading or that little title it immediately sets an expectation of what the point of the story is, what the focus is going to be. And one of the gifts of this approach that we're doing um, as a, a church community of looking at familiar stories through different lenses is actually allowing us to have space to encounter the unexpected rather than the familiar. It's sort of like, for me... Um, I always remember, it was probably 20 plus years ago, some friends from America came to visit and I took them up to Sydney Harbour for the day. And having grown up, you know, here my whole life, I'm very familiar with the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge and the Harbour and QVB and all those things. And so I had, in my mind, it's just going to be, you know, your typical tourist day. But I hadn't counted on the impact of going up with these two tourists who, as soon as we got, we did a little harbour cruise, as soon as we got on the boat, it was like their jaws dropped to the ground and they're from California. So just imagine a California girl, that's what I had times two. Oh my God, this is awesome. But what that did for me is it sort of jolted me and I thought, yeah, it is awesome. I'm very familiar with this, but and because I'm familiar with it, I'm tending to look at it as if I already know what's there. Oh, yeah, you know, drive over the Harbour Bridge. Oh, Opera House, cute. Yeah, the Harbour's okay. But then you see it through the lens of somebody else and you realise this place is magnificent. This is spectacular. Uh, and I got excited because of their excitement. And I feel like what Caro set us up to do with this approach is the same thing, is that we're going to look at things that for some of us might be very, very familiar particularly this particular passage of scripture. It's like a Christian classic and for very good reason. It's an awesome story. Um, two sons and a dad who just is legit father of the year. And there's so much that we can gain from that story and so much that probably for each of you who are familiar with it, already hold, it already holds a very special place in your heart. So I don't want to challenge any of those things. I don't want to confront any of those. But I do hope that I can expand the lens and maybe together we can discover even more treasure and more depth 
in this particular story. Today I'm going to be sharing from the perspective of something known as internal family systems. But before I explain what that is, um, let's just recap Luke chapter 15 verses 11 to 32. In the interests of all of our time, I'm not going to read the whole thing, it's over 20 verses. So, um, But just to familiarise you with the concepts and then I'll just read um, a little bit from the last part. There's a younger son and an older son. The younger son approaches his dad and says, Dad, I want everything that's going to be mine when you die and I want to go and live my best life elsewhere. The father agreed, gave his son the inheritance, the son went off, wasted it all, found himself in a predicament where he was basically homeless, jobless, foodless and just barely existing, living on a farm, eating pig slops. He then had the realisation that, wow, life at home for my dad's employees is better than life here. I probably should put my tail between my legs, go home, ask dad if he'll give me a job because I can't keep living this way. Goes home with the expectation that he's going to be maybe going to be able to crawl his way back into dad's good graces and get a job with the other employees at dad's farm. But we know that that's not what happens. What happens is that as he turns towards home, from a long distance away, his father sees him and with great compassion swelling up in his heart for his son who was returning home, the father raced out to meet him, swept him up in his arms, hugged him dearly and kissed him over and over with tender love. Then the son says, Dad, I was wrong. I've sinned against you. I could never deserve to be called your son. Just let me be. Stop. His father interrupts him. You're home now. And turning to his servants, the father says, quick, bring my robe, bring my shoes, bring the ring and let's celebrate. For my son who I thought was dead is alive. The son I thought was lost has been found. And everyone celebrated with overflowing joy. But the older son was out working in the field when his brother returned. And as he approached the house, he heard the music of celebration and dancing He called over to one of the servants and said, what's going on? The servant replied, it's your younger brother. He's returned and your father is throwing a party to celebrate his homecoming. The older son became angry and refused to go in and celebrate. So his father came and met his son and pleaded with him, please come in and enjoy the feast with us. The son said to his father, listen, How many years have I worked for you like a slave, performing everything you've ever asked asked of me, and I've never once disobeyed you? You've never thrown a party for me because of my faithfulness. Never once have you even given me a goat that I could feast on and celebrate with my friends, and yet here you are, celebrating that son of yours who's come back after wasting all of your wealth on prostitutes and reckless living. And the father said to the older son, My son, you are always with me, by my side. Everything I have is yours to enjoy. It's only right to rejoice and celebrate like this, because your brother was once dead and gone, but now he is alive and back with us again. He was lost, but now he is found. That's from the Passion Translation, if it sounded a little more casual than you used to. (laughs) That's the way I roll with the Bible readings these days. Um, 
But we have that incredible story of the unconditional love of the father and two sons. And so the first question I want to ask before I explain the perspective or the lens that we'll be using this, um, t this afternoon is to ask you if you had to put a subtitle to that story, what that title would be. As you reflect on that story that's just been shared, the impact that it's had on your life and the message that's there, what would you choose as the heading? What's the point of the story? Is it mostly about the reckless behaviour of one child? Or is it about the resentment of another? Or is it mostly about the unconditional love of a father? Or perhaps it's about all of the characters in the story, recognising and demonstrating that true belonging has less to do with location and performance or behaviour and much more to do with authentic vulnerability, honesty, grace and acceptance. So today we're going to, uh, I'm going to give you a crash course in one of my favourite therapeutic modalities. Now I am deeply passionate about this so I'm really going to try hard to not just go on and on and on. So Gary's here to give me that raised look that spouses can give to each other that says it's time to move on. Um, <laughs> but IFS was um, first really established as uh, a therapeutic modality in the 1980s by um, a man by the name of Dr Richard Schwartz, who is a Harvard professor, so, you know, he's got some street cred. And he was working for a long time in a more established psych psychology perspective called family systems. Now, family systems is exactly what it sounds like. It's the system of family. And what family systems recognises is that if you're trying to help somebody who's facing some sort of challenge, there's an area in their life where they're stuck, might be addiction, reckless behaviour, relationship breakdown, that it's important to not just address the individual but to address the system that they're part of. So if you've got a child that's you know, engaging in some reckless behaviour, it's not enough to just work with the teenager, you need to work with dad and mum. Is there another influence in the family? And so family systems looks at the external community and although it is a very valid and effective system, what Dr Schwartz found is that oftentimes, even by ticking all the boxes of that system, that people were still stuck. Kids were still drinking, marriages were still breaking down, people still had eating disorders, people were depressed and anxious and on and on. And as he sort of dug a little deeper in talking to his clients, what he discovered is that many times they referred to an internal family. They didn't use that phrase as such, but what they described were different parts of them. And that word parts is going to become a foundational piece of us understanding what IFS is about. And before anyone has flashbacks to 1980s horror films, if anyone's here old enough to remember Sybil or such, this is not uh, dissociative identity disorder or multiple personalities. This is parts that make up the whole of who we are from a personality perspective. And so, to make it really simple, um, it would be like I say to Linda, hey, Linda, 
do you want to go to the movies tonight? And Linda may reply, well, part of me does because I like hanging out with you, but part of me doesn't want to go out in the rain. And another part of me, honestly, just wants to go to bed. Three different parts, all valid, not good or bad, but they're just different parts of us responding to a, a particular situation. So that's what parts are. And they became the foundational structure of this particular um, therapy. But to illustrate this even more, I'm going to just show you a little clip. Those of you who have, well, children or grandchildren may have seen this film. Um, it's, from, uh, it's a film called Inside Out. Is anybody familiar with Inside Out? It's basically the best free resource for therapists ever. And the next one's coming out in a couple of months' time. I can't wait. But this sets the scene for what our internal world looks like a little bit. It's cute, isn't it? <laughs> so that particular film is giving an outline of, of emotions. Um, IFS is dealing with not just emotions, but actually different sub-personalities. And um, it's when those sub-personalities are working together, if anyone's seen the rest of the film, then we can find a place of flourishing. When those little subparts or those emotions are at war with each other, then we feel internally unsettled and things don't go as well as we'd like them to. <laughs> but the, uh, the next part of, um, of this IFS system is what's called self. And I know that oftentimes in church circles we don't like that word because it sounds self-indulgent, selfish or almost narcissistic. But what we're talking about in this system is that core part of us. So what Dr. Schwartz um, identified is that there were these sub-personality parts but there was most importantly this core self that was calm, that was courageous, that was connected and had clarity. And that was the place from where healing could actually be established. Now, from a Christian framework, and this system is very compatible, um, it has a very strong spiritual component, and actually the forward to the Christian version of IFS is written by Dr. Schwartz. We might call that the God imprint, the DNA, the um, Imago Dei. If we think of Genesis chapter 1, when God breathed life into male and female and said you know you are my image bearers it's that part of us that bears the image of God so we've got that core self then we've got these parts but as we know I was about to say happens life happens and it's not always easy and so these parts of us encounter hurt and pain trauma grief disappointment and that wounds us. And when we're wounded, we start to store that memory. And so parts are now impacted by the memory of something painful. And in this system, those parts are called exiles. So you can start to maybe see the connection between the prodigal son here. You could almost call them prodigals, except they are parts of us that now hold the imprint and I don't know whether you realised in the little clip there that those little marbly type balls that were going along the rail, they're actually memories that were going into the core memory bank of that little girl Riley. 
And so some of these parts become damaged by life and they carry some really difficult experiences. So what the other parts do is that they put on their superman, superwoman cape and go to the rescue and they develop this protector response. And that protector response means that they will do whatever they can to protect that exile from having to experience pain again. So just think about in your own life that there are experiences, normally they start in childhood uh, and you might have an experience at home, it might have been at school, where something happened and it made you feel distress or discomfort or deep pain. And deep inside, a part of you says, I am never going to let that happen again. And so a protector part will then make it its mission to make sure that that pain doesn't have to be accessed again, that we don't have to experience that feeling of rejection or abandonment or sadness or stress. And so those protector parts will start to work really, really hard to protect. What this means, though, is that you have got parts of us in this internal family that are working really, really hard and sometimes start to work really hard against each other. And that's where we tend to get stuck as humans. To put this in the context of the Bible, that makes it all legit, right? You might, you might remember in, um, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says things like, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, that I do. Sounds like somebody who's got a bit of internal conflict. Or what about reading the Psalms? David, you don't even have to go from one Psalm to the next, just even within one Psalm. God, I love you. I'll do everything for you. You are the light of my life three sentences later, God, are you even real? I'm turning my back on you because you've turned my, your back on me. Um, in uh, Matthew, Jesus said to, the, said to the disciples and the Pharisees when they were gathered together, he said, a house divided against itself will not stand. Internal division, internal conflict. And really what IFS is dealing with is that internal conflict that's happening between these different parts of us that really are designed to get along with each other and play an equal role. But because of stuff that happens, some of them get overly enthusiastic and overly invested and overly responsible and then they drive the show. I love this quote from Brennan Manning, which sort of describes, well, I can relate to this, I suppose, which is why I included it. <laughs> Uh, Brennan Manning is uh, part theologian, part author, part um, adventurer. He's quite famous for writing the ragamuffin gospel. He said, when I get honest, I admit I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said, I am a rational animal. I say I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. Or in my case, Chardonnay. So what IFS is dealing with is actually acknowledging for people that work in that system that there is this internal dissonance that happens between the different parts of us. And importantly, these parts can be broken into two categories. One is called a manager, 
and the other is called a firefighter. And as I describe these, I want you to see if you can recognise any of these characteristics in yourself. This is, yes, part sermon and part group therapy session, although you don't have to share anything with each other. I won't put you through that embarrassment. So managers are proactive. They do exactly as their title describes. They handle the way a person interacts with the external world to protect them from being hurt by others and to try and prevent painful experiences or traumatic feelings from flooding our awareness. So classic manager behaviours are people-pleasing, perfectionism and controlling or over-preparing, even catastrophizing. So I'll put my hand up and say that I live in the manager space regularly because when we're in that manager mode, what we're trying to do is preempt and avoid pain. So we'll do whatever we can. We'll put distance between ourselves. We will manage our way from, for, uh, we will manage ourselves away from anything that represents potential danger or historical danger. Firefighters, these are the parts that maybe more relate to that image of anger that we saw. Not always anger, but firefighters are reactive. So they react to pain. And so when they experience pain, they um, basically do something that addresses the pain in the instant. So these are the more impulsive, sometimes addictive, numbing, distracting behaviours. Anything like overeating, overexercising, um, over TV watching, uh, reckless behaviour, substance abuse. These are things where that part of us is driven to stop the feeling of pain in its tracks, whatever it takes. So managers are trying to avoid pain. Firefighters are saying, pain's come, so now I'm going to, I'm going to short circuit that. And the, the, the role of the IFS therapist is to actually help a client listen and become aware of how these parts are at work in their life and then disentangle them in such a way that each part can just step back and relax and not drive the behaviour or you know, our individual lives, but that actually we can experience internal peace and harmony. And that internal peace and harmony comes when we are able to relate back to what we would call our divine image. So when we were able to relate back to that place of calm, clarity, courage, creativity and connection that comes from the God centre that's in us. How are we all travelling? It's all okay? Yeah, I know, you probably. So let me give you an example of how parts work right now because as I stand here, part of me is anxious because I'm hoping that it's making sense. Part of me is afraid of disappointing you. Part of me is excited because I think we're getting to the good stuff. Part of me is feeling a bit sick in the stomach, so I want it to be over. That's parts. And that's, that's just the top four that came to my mind. So we're not talking about um, fabricating anything. What we're talking about in IFS particularly is developing a much deeper awareness of all of the things, the internal chatter that's going on. And rather than rejecting that internal chatter allowing it to have space, acknowledging it, and as we're about to see as we explore the prodigal son, welcoming and embracing it and allowing it to make its home in us. 
But importantly, when it comes to parts, because this is the place where we all can get quite stuck, it's important to recognise that all the parts of us are all doing their best to help us. And this is quite a radical concept when it comes to a therapeutic approach. And I think actually a faith community too, is that we don't see these parts of us as the enemy. We see them as coming from a place where they're trying to help and assist. It's just sometimes they get a little bit too excited about that job. And so what seems to be um, somebody who's really got their act together and is great at um, presenting a well-groomed, well well-balanced, well-articulated, very palatable presentation to the world, um, that might seem like everything is fine. And we might think, wow, that person's really got their act together, haven't they? They're just, they're on top of all of it. Well, that often can be a manager part that says, if I present the way that everybody expects, if I give them what I think they need, if I dress in a way that doesn't cause too many eyebrows to be raised but also has, gets a few approving nods, then I will feel safe and I will feel accepted and I'll feel like I belong. The flip side or the shadow side of that, when that becomes an overdeveloped response, is that we actually don't know how to be ourselves in front of anybody because we're overly engaged in presenting and managing this perfect image. On the flip side, if we're operating in firefighter mode, we can engage in a behaviour that in the moment feels fantastic. Again, I'll go, I'll go first. <laughs> um, you know, something distressing has happened and I think, well, I'm just, um, yeah, I've deserved it. I'm having a Tim Tam. I'll have a second. It's no biggie. Um, yeah, actually, that feels really good. Yep, I earned that chocolate. I think I'll go a third. Hmm. I'm virtually halfway. Why don't I just keep going? And I get the, the payoff in the moment of having indulged in one of my favourite treats and I feel good. And then about half an hour later, I feel like crap. And I go into a shame cycle. You always do that. Why did you do that? You're such an idiot. So each of these things are you know, parts of us that are do in the moment they're trying to do their best to make us feel good and safe. But they get out of whack. So... How does this relate to the prodigal son or the two sons or the loving father or basically just Luke 15, 11 to 32? Well, I don't know about you, but traditionally when I viewed that, that um, story, I have always heavily related to the oldest child, the eldest son, probably no surprise to anyone that knows me, and I have felt equally ripped off, resentful and bitter just like the eldest son has. It's like, great, you get to go and do whatever the hell you want, you come back, you get a party. I'm here doing the right thing, nobody's giving me you know, credit for anything, and there's no party for me. And so I struggle to really identify with the younger son. Of course, there were always those people in church life who were your classic younger son, and they were the ones with the amazing testimony, who always got a lot of airtime at testimony services. And for somebody like me who was the good Christian girl who lives heavily in that manager role of just always presenting what I think everybody else wants to see, um, every time that happened, I'm just like, oh, 
I wish I had a decent testimony. My testimony sucks. Why? Maybe I should just go and be reckless. I don't know. Maybe I'll dye my hair brown, you know, <laughs> or something equally radical. Yeah. <laughs> but what that does is it takes a very binary or polarizing perspective on a story that is actually meant to be applicable to all of us. And so what I'm wondering as we reflect on this is that perhaps this isn't about finding yourself in either the older son or the younger son, but maybe identifying the fact that in each of us is a younger son and an older son. To use an IFS framework, there are managers and protectors at work in both of us. What if the two sons actually represent more than the external roles and identities and behaviours that we see described in the story? What if the younger son represents our firefighter response, that reckless response to feeling pain, while the older son is a manager, constantly trying to do the right thing to keep everybody happy so that they will feel safe? I don't know about you, but have you ever thought about why the two sons responded the way they did? What happened that caused the younger son to want to flee? What happened that had the older son decide that they needed to stay and perform and please? What pain or hurt or shame or trauma is behind the story? What if the responses of these two sons are illustrations of the internal parts of us that are doing their best to protect us from pain by reacting to it or managing us away from it. But the key there, towards the end of the story, is what if these internal parts of us, just like those two sons, are longing to be welcomed home, just as they are? Because as I read that passage of scripture over and over, I realised that actually neither of the sons felt like they were at home. Neither of them felt welcome at home. The younger son left and went out to try and work out whatever frustration or whatever pain was happening in, in his life. But the older son who stayed, based on his response at the end, he clearly wasn't enjoying being where he was. So one of them reacted by fleeing, the other reacted by striving, but neither of them actually allowed themselves to enjoy the belonging of being at home with their father. Both of them were already accepted and loved by the father. Both of them were already welcome at home but something had blocked their view. But what I love about this story is that when they turned towards the father, they both recognised that the father had already turned towards them. He embraced them. He welcomed them. One of the unexpected truths that I've gathered from years of experience as a human and later as a pastor and then as a therapist, is that we all have elements of both of these sons in us. Depending on what's going, in our going on in our life, we can swing from 
fleeing, avoiding and numbing, to striving and performing and managing. All in a quest to avoid the pain of just being who we really are, warts and all. The common experience of not feeling fully welcome and having to disown parts of ourselves brings untold suffering, hiding and shame. It keeps our relationship shallow and drives our addictions and pain. For many years, I tried to overperform my way into feeling okay. I tried to stay so busy that I wouldn't ever have time to deal with the uncomfortable feelings that were bubbling under the surface. I thought if I could just keep the people around me happy, then I would always feel worthy and safe. I believe that if I did the right thing by the church, then my sense of value and belonging would be guaranteed. Yet I remained at war on the inside, unsettled at best, miserable at worst, and regularly exhausted. And I've spent a lot of time in therapy. I think every good therapist has a therapist. <laughs> Being curious and open and willing to see the different parts of me just as they are. Not as all of who I am, but part of who I am. And I've begun to realise that these parts of me are trying to help me. They're not my enemy, they're actually my friends. If I will take the time to pause, to listen, and like the Father, embrace them and let them be welcome just as they are. Recognising that all parts of me are welcomed by God, not to be rebuked but embraced, has helped me experience grace rather than staying stuck in a cycle of shame. I realised that I didn't have to achieve and perform and get all parts of me to do it right before I could be my authentic self without fear of judgement. And then I got to experience the reality of grace. The reality that had been elusive for much of my life, even though I was well acquainted with it. From a conceptual or theoretical perspective, I didn't really get it. I didn't have that dadiri deep to deep awareness of what it was to be loved by God just as I am. I wonder what it would be like for you to know that every part of you was truly welcome. And one of the cornerstones of an IFS perspective, and I believe this aligns perfectly with the example of God in the life of Jesus and in this parable, is that we do not have to get ourselves right to be embraced and welcomed. We do not have to change to be accepted. And that's not just our external behaviour, that is our internal world. Those parts of us that only we are aware of that contain the mess, the dysfunction, the pain, the unspoken fear, all of those things, I believe that God says, they're welcome here. You don't need to try and understand it or change it or redeem it before you come home to me. 
what would it feel like to know that the parts of you that say unhelpful and inappropriate things, that feel lonely and afraid, that they don't need to be just tolerated or worked on, but they can be accepted, received and valued. The truth is, in our families, in our communities and historically, particularly in our places of worship, it's not been safe for us to be our authentic selves. I don't think this place is like that. But historically, my own experiences of faith communities have very much confirmed that there is one version of me that is acceptable and the other part that I will keep hidden. And in hiding out that from the other people that I was worshipping with, I felt like I also had to hide that from God because God couldn't really accept that because nobody else would. And what that's meant for so many of us is that not only do we not feel safe in our communities, whatever they are, we actually don't feel safe in ourselves. We don't feel safe inside. I will always remember one client in particular saying to me with deep sincerity. She said, no one can say anything more damaging to me than the things I already tell myself every day. I wanted to weep. But I realised that she was actually being brutally honest about what is a reality for many people. We are our own worst critics. We are the ones that perpetuate the war that goes on in the inside. As we fight like the Apostle Paul said, we do the things we don't want to do and don't seem to be able to do the things we do want to do. Oh, wretched man am I. And I want to go back in time and say to the Apostle Paul, all of your parts are welcome. God embraces all of those things. You are not wretched. You are loved. And maybe that's a conversation we'll have in heaven or maybe he'll tell me I'm wrong and that's okay, I can make peace with that. When Jesus showed up in the world, he turned everyone's concept of God upside down. He challenged expectations of what a healthy spiritual and emotional life looked like and how it should behave. And having it all together at all times was definitely not it. This story shows us a father who ran towards, not away, from his prodigal son. And a father who reminded his performance-driven son that he did not need to earn his belonging, but instead could enjoy his belonging. This story shows us that all parts are welcome, that healing is possible, and that alive and well at our centre is a powerful, transformative, God-created core. And when we are fully connected to that, when we are attuned to the presence and image of God, we can walk towards healing. We can encounter the love and the acceptance, the grace and celebration of the, of the divine. Before we move on to the next part, I wonder 
given that we've started with listening. Uh, and listening is one of the key components of this approach, is that if we could just take a minute or two, and maybe as I'm talking, you can just, if you will indulge the therapist in me, just give me a couple of minutes, and um, just start to settle yourself where you are. And if you're comfortable to close your eyes, close your eyes. And take a couple of deep breaths to just steady your body and your heart and bring a deeper sense of calm and stillness to your thoughts. One of the key components of this approach to healing is that we embrace with compassionate curiosity, every part of us, that we welcome and are grateful for the parts that we like and the parts that we don't quite understand because we believe that they are all trying to help us. But it's good to get to know some of those parts. And so just in the next couple of minutes, as we sit in silence, I wonder if you can reflect on any parts that are coming up for you. There may be a part of you that says, this is rubbish, that's okay. Just acknowledge that part and thank it and see if there's any other parts that want to talk. Perhaps you're growing in awareness of that internal conflict that I've talked about. Is there a part of you that wants your attention right now, that wants to be welcomed and accepted by you? Perhaps there's a part of you that you're ashamed of. You don't like to talk about it. You don't like to acknowledge it. Maybe today you could allow it to be there. And thank it for trying to help you. Perhaps there's a part of you that's vying for your attention and you know that you need to have a conversation with it later on tonight. Just let it know that you've heard it, you see it and you'll come back to it. And just as we sit in the quietness, I'm going to pray over each of us. Father God, it is a joyous and beautiful homecoming when all the aspects of who we are find peaceful acceptance within us 
allowing us to feel a sense of wholeness without shaming or judging. You stand with us in the shadows of our personality, helping us to face the things about ourselves that we are embarrassed by or cannot make sense of. How often we judge others for the very things that hide in the dark closet of our own life. We project onto them what we reject in ourselves. And in doing so, we miss the grace you offer to embrace the prodigal parts of our own life that we have disowned. Spirit of God, we ask for the grace today to befriend each exiled part, bringing all that we are into your non-anxious, patient presence. You are the great physician, the beloved father, mending that which has been torn, binding up wounds where pain still remains and welcoming all that we are into a place of safety, joy and belonging. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. Mm-hmm. <laughs>